my name is Jason Maurice Porter, and I'm here today with Noria, Mexico and Central America's series on violence takes place, land, markets, and power in Mexico. And we are continuing our conversation on gender, geography, and violence against women in Mexico and Central America. And before getting into the conversation, because it is October 2nd, I'd just like to acknowledge the local massacre that took place 52 years ago today that not only shaped violence in Mexico then, but continues to shape discourse around violence in Mexico to this day. It's our distinct pleasure today to have as our guest, Deborah Bernello, a journalist, writer, and investigator based in Mexico City. She's the current senior editor Latin America for Vice World News, and she's written for numerous publications such as The Telegraph, The Guardian, Los Angeles Times, BBC, and many more. How are you, oh, how are you doing today, Deborah? How are Hi. things in Mexico City? Hi, Jason. I'm very well, thank you. Things are a little quieter in Mexico than normal with COVID, although not as quiet as you would like. <laughs> but things yeah. are good. Good, good. I I meant to say also the reason why we have you here today is your forthcoming book, Women in the Sinaloa Cartel, which provides an amazing counterpuntal point to the discourse on gender-based violence in Mexico. Um, so it's really exciting to hear about um, to hear about that as we jump into the conversation today. So, how is violence today in Mexico compared to in 1968? Well, I mean, it's hard to um, ignore the fact that violence is at an all-time high right now. The, the the root causes of that, I think, are very different. I think um, state-sponsored violence, like the kind we saw at Tlatelolco, uh, still remains a very big problem in Mexico, and and quite frankly, a perennial problem in the in the in the entire region. We're seeing significant pushback against police brutality in countries like. Brazil and Colombia. Um, but uh, right now, Mexico is seeing record levels of violence. It's on track to see its most violent, you know, the most uh, homicides in modern history. And a lot of that is connected to organized crime and the drug trade um, and this government sponsored crackdown on drug traffickers, which uh, Mexico President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Uh, claimed was over when he took power um, at the end of 2018, but continues pretty much um, unabated. It's it's difficult to know how many of those murders are murders are, are due to gangs and intergang violence because there isn't any distinction made in official statistics between the causes of of murders in that sense in terms of the perpetrators, um, but it's fair for us to assume that a large chunk of that violence um, is circled around, you know, is centered around conflict between competing gangs for criminal markets and um, a result of, of the government crackdown on those groups. So yeah, things, things in Mexico aren't great right now. So I'm sad to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very lucid and a grim, um, but realistic picture that you paint. Uh, uh. Um, it seems that your recent work for um, um, Insight um, Crime, I believe, um, focused on some of these criminal markets that you 
are referring to, your work on timber mafias preying on Latin America forests took you to Colombia, Honduras, Peru, but it also took you to Northwest Mexico. Could you situate us there? Yeah, the the study was carried out by Insight Crime, who I used to work for and is a think tank focused on organized crime in the Americas. I did not single-handedly undertake the whole um, study. I, it was done with my colleagues there. Um, so my part was the Mexico part of that Um and yes, most of my in investigation focused on um, Chihuahua, which is the biggest state in Mexico and bought, shares a border with the United States. So cities that you might have heard of, including um, El Paso, uh, sorry, so Mexican cities you might have, in, have heard of, including Ciudad Juarez, are part of uh, the state of Chihuahua. Um, so my investigation centered around um, the sort of southwestern part of the state near Ciudad Cuauhtémoc um, and the part of the state that's dominated by sort of very forested mountains. Um, Chihuahua is is being contested and has long been kind of a, a contested zone. You know, on the one hand, you have the Juarez cartel and their armed wing operated operating there. And then um, further south, you know, Chihuahua is, port of, is part of the, the Golden Triangle, which is Mexico's, you know, most productive... Uh, drug production zone. So you have a lot of poppy heroin, a lot of marijuana being grown and processed in that region. And so the Sinaloa cartel, obviously Sinaloa borders part of Chihuahua and Sinaloa controls um, Sinaloa, obviously the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and there's a lot of conflict um, in Chihuahua between the Juarez cartel and the Sinaloa cartel in terms of, of territorial control. Um, so the investigation was about how drug trafficking groups get and have gotten involved in the illegal wood business. Um, I uh, spent a, about a week up there doing research and then a lot of time going through documents and looking at um, Mexico's regulatory system when it comes to tracking illegal wood. Um, and I think the most important element in all of this is the significance of the territorial control that criminal groups have. So in Mexico, it's not just about drugs anymore, and it hasn't been for a really long time. Criminal groups like this, they, they, they control territory, and within that territory, they then have their hands in a lot of different types of, of criminal activities, be that drugs, extortion, kidnapping, fuel theft is a huge problem in some parts of the country. Um, and in Chihuahua, you know, the, the, the geographical context of that state affords them the opportunity to log and sell mostly pine um, as a valuable source of local profit with impunity. But what that means is a lot of the violence um, and social capital and control that exists around the drug trade extends to affect these, these parts of the country. So, um, you know, drug bosses are now not just controlling 
territories because they want to move drugs through. They want to sell drugs there. They want to sell illegal wood there. They want to extort other groups who might want to sell illegal wood there. They control the sawmills who process that that illegal wood and then move it into um, the legal wood flow where it then becomes indistinguishable from other sources of wood. Um, but of course, with that territorial control, like you see again all over the region, comes a dominance and the use of violence to create terror to keep local populations subdued. Um, and that makes it very hard for dissent to, to set in. And it also makes it really hard for law enforcement to have any real impact on weakening those groups. Um, and that was certainly something that I saw when I was in Chihuahua and uh, I was in both Ciudad Cuauhtémoc and Creel. Um, and in fact, the morning after I arrived in Creel, which is a sleepy tourist town usually, um, because it's sort of the kickoff point for um, the Copper Canyon, which is a popular tourist route and tourists come and take the train um, that takes them from Ciudad Cuauhtémoc and Creel all the way to Los Mochis in Sinaloa. Um, anyway, in this sleepy town, you know, in the, more, in, the, in the early morning, a few hours after I arrived, they dumped six headless bodies on the outskirts of the town. Um, and the message left on the bodies alluded to the, uh, the wood trade. Um, so it's definitely, you know, I did see sort of firsthand that it's a generator of pretty appalling violence as well. Goodness, yeah, that's uh, that's quite the that's quite the image. That's quite the message. It's super clear, and uh, it's also clearly not just about drugs. It's uh, clearly not uh, an organized crime rooted in just illicit um, economies. Uh, the, the focus that you highlighted around territorial control is is broad spectrum, like a pesticide. It's tremendous to hear the many ways that it that it infiltrates. Um, uh, community a region um it's, uh, so now that we have have addressed one of our themes in our our set of conversations geography and have a better understanding of how geography is central for land power and markets um, and also violence um in mexico now we can shift to your forthcoming work and um the meat of this conversation um which is gender-based violence, which is also something that, you know, if, 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 if organized crime isn't just about drugs, um, organized crime isn't just run by men. Um, so to jump into your book, um, would you like to kind of um, introduce um, your work or how you came to it um, and why it's timely um, before you get into maybe some significant bits or maybe even argument if we're so lucky. So um, I've been covering organized crime in Mexico since I got here in 2007. And um, as you know, there's always been a fascination around um, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, who last year was sentenced to life in, a, in an American prison for his... Uh, criminal empire, the criminal empire that he ran, which was the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and during that time, I remember that his wife, Emma Coronella, was very visible at the trial. Uh, and, and I sort of feel like the media kind of 
love to hate her um, and people sort of love to hate her. And she did this perhaps slightly misjudged, um, you know, cable TV show where, you know, she was swanning around on a boat with a bunch of other people connected to the criminal underworld. And uh, she was, she was kind of much maligned for that. Um, But, but, you know, women have long been um, associated with drug bosses, but Obviously, I did a I did a lot of coverage on the trial, and I remember noticing one day because often in the story and the and the and the speed of things, you don't pay attention to some details. That the only woman on the indictment um, that eventually took Chapel down was a woman called Guadalupe Fernandez Valencia, who was his head money launderer um and actually her arrest and her treatment by the justice system kind of run in parallel with uh, that of her boss um i think she was arrested uh a little bit before chapel uh joaquin guzman was arrested um and then she was extradited to the united states when his trial got underway obviously she was a an important witness in that case, but but it it, it, it sort of jumped out at me how, um, as the only woman on the indictment, um, she also got very little coverage in the media, and I was fascinated by, you know, someone with a job like that, um, and obviously, you know, United States court documents um, have to put together a case, and the the, the allegations in the court documents against Guadalupe are that she worked hand in hand with uh, Chapo Guzman's son, Jesus, um, also known as Alfredillo, um, and that they together were, were key operatives. She was kind of his lieutenant um, and worked from on everything from, you know, the drug distribution process to trying to move proceeds paid in the US back into Mexico. Um, and and I was I was I was just fascinated by the fact that it was a woman. And then and so then I started digging around um, and seeing, you know, some of the other people that were involved in the trial. Um, and also some of the other women that were connected to the Sinaloa cartel in different parts of Latin America. Because remember, you know, Mexico and the and the cartel Yes, they do grow a lot of heroin, poppy, and marijuana in Mexico. And obviously, the Sinaloa cartel is also a major producer of methamphetamine. But cocaine and the base ingredient for it, which is coca, is only grown in Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia. And Mexico, Mexico's criminal organizations are actually the, the, the transporters of that. So they rely on partners across the region to help them bring that product to the US. And, and as I looked into it, there were, there were key women in Honduras and in Guatemala, um, as well as Mexico, who were helping um, the cartel make that happen. And fascinatingly, there was also um, a woman who was the head sicaria. Um, sicaria is sort of Mexican Spanish for uh, assassin. Uh, she was the head assassin for Chapel's right-hand man. Um, and she's currently sitting in a prison in Baja California, um, 
And, you know, when I looked at how women killers were portrayed, again, you know, these Instagram pics of, you know, big breasted, you know, women with huge round bums and massive guns and like there was hypersexualized. Um, and I thought, well, there's got to be more behind that because this is not a, 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 a catwalk, you know, this is a very like a viscerally male world in which violence is one of the, it, well, I think it's fair to say violence is the main currency after the dollar maybe. Um, and so I was fascinated to learn more about how women who do not have a, have a monopoly on violence, um, you know, violence is very much, um, at least in Mexico, uh, well, violence across the world, you know, is very much, uh, is very male, I think. Um, and I think our ideas of it are very male. And clearly that's restrictive because women are, are as capable of violence as men are. So I was really fascinated to dig into how these women were negotiating such a male macho world that is dominated by violence and managing to sort of rise up within those ranks. That's that's kind of it in a in a very big nutshell. That's that's tremendous. Um, I I I mean the connections that you draw, um, not only broadening kind of violence through um, looking beyond masculinity, but also not only looking at women in Sinaloa or in Mexico, but um, finding connections in Central America. I believe you said Guatemala and Honduras and. Um, that that I mean, that's amazing. Why do you personally feel that you are well suited to tell these stories? Um, maybe maybe you could tell us a little about um, being a woman in the industry um, that's so male dominated as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely very few women who were reporting on organized crime, um, at least in Mexico, over the last ten years. Um, in, in, in a focused way. I mean, most of the journalists who are distinguished for doing that are men, um, which I think is a reflection of uh, the criminal world and the interest, um, the interest in the narratives around organized crime. I also thought it was fascinating that I found so many cases of high-ranking women in the in the Sinaloa cartel that had had such little coverage and the coverage of those women again in the case of Melissa Calderon who's known as La China and was the the chief assassin the coverage of them was very sexualized um and very much in relation to their their relationship with men their relationships with men um so you know, I sort of felt from a, from a personal point of view that the stories of women are very rarely told by the people who cover organized crime. And there's not that much interest in the women um, who are involved in the context which I'm looking at. And I think for better or for worse, um, women don't invite as much interest. And I think there's also kind of a there's, there's sort of a more low-profile nature to the lot of women that I'm profiling. I don't know how um, uh, purposeful or intentional that is on the part of these women. Um, you know, like in um, 
I'm not sure sort of whether they've purposefully kept their profile to a minimum, you know, or whether whether it's a, a strategy of theirs or whether it's just the fact that the, the media and, and other institutions aren't that interested in documenting their story. You know, it's probably a little bit of both, but I, I'm sort of fascinated by that. Um, and so I do think that uh, the conversations around women in organized crime have very much focused around you know, gangsters mole, you know, the, the Emma Coronella, the, 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 the pretty wife, um, uh, mistresses, lovers, that kind of thing. But there hasn't been a great deal of attention um, on these women who have power and influence um, and are, you know, very much making decisions at the top table. And I really wanted to try and dig down a little on how they got to where they are, what their motivations were, um, with a lens that I don't think has been used very much. Um, so that was that was really that was really what was kind of behind it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, it seems like the perspective, it's it, and the the lack the the perspective is necessarily largely not only because of a lack of coverage, but the lack of coverage seems to reflect a lack of understanding of of the criminal underworld because these, these, many of these cases, the way we look at the crime is, is, is either, you know, it's either gendered in the sense that we think that it's very masculine or when we look at women, it's over-sexualized. I mean, that's, I mean, you make that so clear. Do you think that being a woman in the industry, um, having familiarity and so much experience in the in the region allows you to uh, uh, open some doors in your investigation. I think so. I mean, I think there's a very big difference between me and a lot of the women I'm covering, who have all, uh, with few exceptions, come from much more humble backgrounds than I have, um, and certainly disadvantaged. Um, but what really struck me, I was speaking to someone who had done a lot of interviews with women in American prisons, many of which were incarcerated for homicide, um, you know, homicide, sort of sort of paid, paid killing work. And what she said really struck me was that for many of these women, um, they felt emancipated by that level of power and responsibility. Now, I, I know that it's controversial, obviously, because um, murder is a very serious thing. And I'm not trying to, um, I, I'm sort of taking the moral compass off for, for, for a moment, if you'd let me. I just found it fascinating that, you know, women in certain socioeconomic contexts who come from backgrounds where they're not um, afforded an education or the professional opportunities they, that they want saw in in the world of organized crime and that kind of subworld, if you like, an opportunity to move up. And um, even though for the vast majority of people, um, we might not have taken that opportunity. I think it's a, it, it's a reflection of their desperation and disempowerment, um, but also their ambition and uh, what's the word? Mm, drive, you know, and, and this is, this is not to say, you know, I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It, it is what it is, but I was fascinated by that because 
I think, um, of, of, of sorts for them, it was an opportunity. Um, and I do think that's a, that's why a lot of men and women, um, get into join the ranks of organized crime in the region. Um, but obviously I do think in countries like Mexico, women are especially disadvantaged because, um, there is still a strong culture of, of machismo and, uh, that women belong in the home. So I was just really struck by that. And it, and it made me want to know more about the personal motivations of these girls and women and, and their story and how they, how they sort of ended up there. I, I would be struck too. I mean, that is objectively jarring. I, um, it, it makes me, it makes me wonder, do you feel like because of your position, you hear stories or you have an ear do you hear things that, you know, perhaps male investigators and, in you know, criminal underworld or organized crime don't hear? I mean, I think it's more, there's a couple of things. I think a lot of people just aren't asking those questions because yeah. it seems, it seems niche to them. But I also feel like um, I'm probably going to get more of an in if I'm interviewing women um, than men might do on certain issues. Uh, that's not a that's not a guaranteed. I think it's actually more to do with just asking different questions. Yeah. Um, but again, I think there is a narrative in organized crime that women are, you know, so there's either the gangsters mole, as we've discussed, or they're victims, you know, victims of, of sex trafficking. Uh, a lot of drug mules are women. Uh, a lot of single mums are doing time in jail for moving very small quantities of drugs um, and getting caught. Um, and those are very real things, but I was very interested to sort of look at a different narrative, which is this narrative of empowerment and um, influence, which I don't think is discussed very much in the in this context. It may not be the majority of women. I very much doubt that it is, but I think it's still a very interesting dynamic that hasn't really been unpacked Um as kind of a non sort of a non-fiction narrative project, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think, I think to, to kind of, you know, center this back and, you know, you know, um, or to center this or to, to, to get to our kind of a concluding point um, after all of this rich, um, this rich material, I think, that I guess I could ask a different question, you know, as you have you kind of highlighted, it's not necessarily your your perspective or your positionality, but it's different questions, right? And I, I loved how you, you know, focusing on um, empowerment and, you, you know, you highlighted that, you know, in, in, in many women because of the, you know, their their situations being as dire as they are and the lack of empowerment that they have in their, you know, they, they, they like the responsibility. Um, Another responsibility that's oftentimes gendered and displaced on or placed heavily on women is motherhood, correctly or correct. Um, and um, it seems like you you talked about mothers a little bit in in um, in your examples, but also how is it being a, a mother doing this investigative research? Um, you know, uh, you know, and how is that? How is that? similar or different to some of the the, the the trials that you see mothers facing um, both within the cartel but also victim to the cartel? I mean, for me personally, I, I should have mentioned this when we were talking about my experience as a reporter. I do um, get a lot of reactions from people when they find out what I do, a lot of raised eyebrows and uh, 
um, disapproval a lot of the time uh, when they find out what I do uh, in a way that I don't, I, I think the reaction for men who do that, whether they have children or not, is, you know, wow, isn't that cool? <laughs> but the, 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 a lot of the reaction I tend to get is, well, you know, that's really dangerous and why are you doing that? And, you know, obviously if it was really dangerous, um, then I wouldn't do it. I do spend a huge amount of time um, at my desk on the phone uh, before or after COVID, you know, trailing through um, court documents and, uh, you know, reading other people's studies into these things. So, you know, that to begin with, I think, is a judgment um, that is made about my field of interest that would be different if I was a man. Um, and also kind of an inappropriateness to it. You know, I think it is seen as a male area of specialism, for better or for worse. Um, but also, yes, you know, a lot of the women uh, who I'm studying um, and focusing on in the book had children, and many of their children were involved in their criminal enterprises, um, much as El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman, uh, looped his sons into his uh his his and his uh what's the word criminal empire uh, as it was called um a lot of the women uh that i focus on did as well because i think there is an implicit trust between women and their sons and their daughters um but then one of the women i focus on who's from honduras dignavalle uh it, 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 it's so interesting, you know, she, she was part of a, a criminal dynasty that also involved her brothers. She was the first to be arrested by the, by the United States government and subsequently um, helped them arrest her brothers and her son. Um, and her daughter was subsequently arrested in Honduras. Um, and now that she has done her time and helped them build a massive case and Bring, to bring down her drug trafficking organization. She's currently awaiting to see whether, even though she was a cooperating witness, whether she is going to be deported back home to Honduras, which if she did, quite frankly, uh, she'd be lucky to survive. I mean, Honduras is very, uh, probably as close as you can get to a narco state. The, the brother of the sitting president has been convicted of drug trafficking in the U.S., the sitting uh, president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is being investigated for drug trafficking himself. So anyone who goes home after having blabbed to the gringos about the drug trade, um, she's going to get a lot of attention, let's just put it that way. Uh, so, you know, she, but she, she, was, she was the linchpin of that case. She was one of the most important cooperating witnesses. Um, and I think... You know, a lot of the press coverage around it was was how she gave up her son. And I wonder whether people would have judged, you know, Joaquin Guzman in the same way. You know, there is there is the, the way that we look at the criminal behavior in terms of gender is very interesting. I think there's a certain kind of inappropriateness to bad women. Um, and if we are bad, we're, you know, we're evil and it's it's something apart rather than we are as capable as wrongdoing as men are, which I think is part of the equality that we're fighting for. Um, 
so I'm just I'm just fascinated by that narrative as well. And uh, you know, the the books are work in progress. I, I, I with with COVID, I haven't been able to do the field work that I that I wanted to yet. But um, I've no doubt that it's going to lead me down some very interesting paths. Yeah, no, uh, we look forward to um, the field opening back up for you, so you can get back out there and uh, finish up this this work for us. Um, it's, uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you today talking about both your book and your, um, your insights on gender and gender-based violence. Uh, before we, you know, say goodbye, are there any final words that you would like to say? Final points? Deborah? I mean, I think I just, you know, in the, in the context of the Me Too movement and the growing conversation and pushback around um, the treatment of women and our role in the world. Um, I do think it's more important than ever to have a plethora of narratives about what that position is. Um, And I think, yes, we are victims and we are held down and we are exploited. But I think it's much more nuanced than that. and I and I I feel like it does a disservice to reality to not reflect a lot of those narratives, even though some of them may not be very popular. Um, but I think we do need to look at this from all sides, and um, I'm hoping that this book will add to that conversation. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will, and uh, I understand that um, perspective very much. Um, and I appreciate it greatly. Um, with that, thank you so much for your time, Deborah. Um, it was lovely having you um, in our conversation on gender, geography, and violence against women um, in the series uh, Violence Takes Place for Noria, Mexico, and Central America. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe in Mexico City, Deborah. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for taking the time.